Hello! Welcome to Learning by Literary Audiophiles, or Learning Be Lit AF. If you don't get that, don't worry. You are not the target audience here, because this is intended for students. And if you do get it, don't worry. I am not trying to be funny with this podcast, so if I'm not, that means I've succeeded. My name is Theoden Humphrey, but I go by Dusty, because nothing makes sense! I am a high school language arts teacher with 20 years of experience. I've taught everything from remedial English to advanced placement classes, generally with success. I am now in the middle of a spring break that has already stretched to four weeks because of the COVID-19 outbreak, and we are moving into online and distance learning. It's possible that this break will last until the end of the school year. I know there are millions of parents who have suddenly been thrown into homeschooling their kids, and millions of students who are suddenly on their own as you try to get through all of this, and as you prepare for your next step. I want to help. So I figured I would try to make some individual lessons that would sound pretty much like the literature classes I've been teaching for two decades, so that people could maybe use this as a resource. This is a little different from how I normally read with my classes, because I don't have anyone here in front of me to discuss this with, to bounce ideas off of, to ask questions and answer questions, which generally guides the analysis of the piece. But I'll do my best. As a general disclaimer, let me state that literature never has only one interpretation, one right explanation. Reading is an ongoing conversation, and the meaning is negotiated between the parties, the writer and the reader. In this situation, then, I am the reader, and so the interpretation here is going to be mine, but this is not the answer to this work. My hope is that by reading through this piece and talking through my understanding of it, it will help others to understand it and to find their own ideas about it. Hopefully it will also give you some practice with the process of reading and thinking about literature, and that will help you with everything else in life. Because literature is about life, about the human condition and the world we live in. Learning about literature is learning about the world and about our place in it. So let's get started. This episode is going to be a little different, because today we're doing rhetoric. The selection I'm going to be analyzing is Queen Elizabeth's speech, not the current Elizabeth, the one from the 1500s, to her troops at Tilbury. So, as this is nonfiction, we have a different goal. With literature, the goal of analysis is to open up the author's style and examine all of the craft the author used to shape the piece. With nonfiction, like this speech, we do mostly the same thing. But here we're trying to understand the author's purpose, what their goal was, and how they used language to try to achieve it. Uh, A way to think about this is that the conversation in this nonfiction piece is not actually between us and the author. The conversation happened between the speaker and her audience, and we are just observers trying to understand what their conversation was. Uh, that still means that we can now participate in that conversation that already happened. We can sort of jump in as commentators, and we can create a new understanding of it. So it's not too different, but our place in it is is different. We're sort of more above and outside the conversation And we have more information because we have both sides of it. Literature literature itself, as in fiction, uh, poetry and prose, is not usually written to try to achieve anything other than the connection between author and reader. Nonfiction often builds the same connection, but then it uses that connection to accomplish what the author has in mind. And it is a very good idea for us to understand what we are reading and listening to, and why it looks and sounds the way it does. Because if we understand... We have some control over our response to it. But if we don't know what's going on, we are at the mercy of the speaker. So, I'm going to read the speech. It's very short, and 
no, I'm not going to read it in an accent, nor try to sound like a woman, even though that's actually an important aspect of the speech. And then I'm going to go over some vocabulary, and then I'll talk some about rhetoric and what it means and how we can try to understand it through this speech. I want to say now that rhetoric is a truly difficult subject to get a grasp on. But the good thing is, you don't need to master it right away. The better you get at it, the easier it will be to learn more and improve. And at least in my experience, the more interesting it gets. As always, I recommend having the text in front of you while we read and making notes and highlighting or underlining the important or interesting words and lines and sentences. You need to participate in the conversation to understand what's going on here. I'm going to be using the text from the Royal Museum's Greenwich website. If you search for Queen Elizabeth's speech at Tilbury, that's T-I-L-B-U-R-Y, you'll find it. Go ahead and pause the podcast. I'll wait. Ready? Here we go. August 8th, August 9th, 1588. My loving people, we have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery. But I assure you, I do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear. I have always so behaved myself that, under God, I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects. And therefore I am come amongst you, as you see, at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved, in the midst and heat of the battle, to live and die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people my honor and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which, rather than any dishonor shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I know already, for your forwardness, you have deserved rewards and crowns, and we do assure you on a word of a prince, they shall be duly paid. In the meantime, my lieutenant general shall be in my stead than whom never prince commanded a more noble or worthy subject. Not doubting, but by your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp, and your valor in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over these enemies of my God, of my kingdom, and of my people. Okay, vocabulary. Multitudes is large numbers, in this case, large numbers of people, meaning the army. Disport is to enjoy oneself, to frolic. Scorn is contempt, to feel that someone is despicable. Parma is a duchy in northern Italy. In this case, Elizabeth is referring to the Duke of Parma, who was the general of the invading army that was supposed to be transported across the English Channel by the Spanish Armada, and which this army at Tilbury was there to fight. 
Forwardness is essentially courage, the willingness to step forward, to show up. Duly means according to what is expected or what is right, what is their due. Concord is agreement or harmony, willingness to get along. And valor is great courage in the face of danger. Now let's talk about rhetoric. Rhetoric gets a bad rap in this country, and maybe all over the world these days. We use it to describe either a very specific element in some writing, the rhetorical question, or we apply it to someone whose speech is not believable. We say a politician's speech, for example, is just rhetoric, or even worse, empty rhetoric. But rhetoric doesn't mean words that are manipulated or manipulative. It just means words with purpose. Rhetoric is the art of using language to achieve a goal. That's it. It's as broad and as simple as that, which means it covers an enormous range of human interactions, and understanding it then has to cover the same range and is enormously difficult. When you don't know where you are and you want to ask someone for directions, the way you approach and speak to a person and ask for what you want, those are rhetorical decisions. And the words you say are rhetoric. So if you are a young person approaching another young person for directions, you may speak to that person differently than you would an older person. Once you, for one case, you might say, hey man, and the other you might say, excuse me, sir? Think about how you ask people for money. Those are all rhetorical decisions. The way you make those rhetorical decisions is that you think about who you are and who you are talking to. You think about the context, and you think about what you want to get. Then with all that, you shape the language that you use. So the money example, for instance, what you want to get is money. The context might be whether you've borrowed money from that person before, whether they owe you money and you're looking to get them to pay back the money they owe you, how much money you want, what you want it for, what your relationship is with that person. All of that is context, right? And all of that goes into making your decisions about rhetoric. And so when we analyze rhetoric of a written piece like this, basically what we do is reverse that process. Starting with the language, we try to figure out what the author was thinking in terms of their audience, themselves, and the context, and how those factors influence their language choices. If you like visual graphic organizers, then here's a classic one that I teach my AP language class where we focus on rhetoric. Draw a triangle, and at one of the three points, write speaker, at another, write audience, and the third, message. In the middle of the triangle, write purpose, and around the outside, in the air surrounding the triangle, write context. This is how the rhetoric interacts along the lines from speaker to audience and audience to speaker, from speaker to message, from message to audience. Altogether, they frame and reveal the purpose, which has to be set within the context to make sense. Too much? Don't sweat it. This specific piece is a lot easier. With this piece, we have some advantages because we know quite a lot about the speaker and the context, and we know some things about the audience, and of course, we have the message, which is just which is the words the speaker uses to communicate with the audience. Though we also have to read between the lines and determine if there are hidden and subtle messages from this speaker to this audience, and of course there are. Let's start with what we know. Queen Elizabeth I was a Protestant ruler of England, who spent most of her 45-year reign at war with the Catholic nation of Spain. 
Spain was far richer, larger, and more powerful, and when they decided to invade England in 1588, England was in a lot of trouble. Spain sent one of the greatest fleets that the Western world had ever seen across the English Channel between France and England, the Spanish Armada. It was made up of 130 warships, including several enormous galleons that outgunned the English Navy by far. Even worse, the Armada was supposed to provide cover for an army of 35,000 Spanish soldiers, an enormous number of soldiers at the time, who were supposed to cross the Channel on barges while the English Navy was busy getting the snot beaten out of them by the Armada. Then the 20,000 soldiers and sailors of the Armada would join them, and they would conquer England. At least, that was the plan. What happened was, the Armada was slowed and delayed by bad weather, and then the English Navy, though smaller, was faster and more maneuverable, and won the first encounter. Then, the English scattered the Armada with a nighttime fireship attack, and the Spanish got caught in even worse weather in the Irish Sea, and several of the ships were wrecked. The massive army never got across the channel. The Spanish were defeated. But the English back on land did not know this, and never would have guessed that the mighty Spanish navy would have lost the fight. England's militia gathered at Tilbury, at the outlet of the Thames River, in case the Spanish army landed there to march up to London. Four thousand men, mostly peasants and farmers with poor equipment and no real military training, getting ready to fight off 35,000 soldiers, and maybe another 20,000 soldiers and sailors from the Armada, led by one of the best military leaders of the day, the Duke of Parma. That's the audience, those 4,000 militia. The context is this coming invasion, the end of their life as citizens of an independent nation, and for many of them, the end of their religion, as Spain would certainly not allow the English to remain Protestants once they got rid of Elizabeth. And that's the speaker, Elizabeth, the queen, generally beloved and admired by her people, but aware that there are some people in her kingdom who oppose her because they are Catholic and Elizabeth was not, and others who think she is responsible for bringing this Spanish invasion down on them. So how does Elizabeth address them? As my loving people. Now, this is probably correct, as the ones who don't like her wouldn't have shown up to defend her nation. But even here, these men may not be big fans of hers, and they are there not to defend Elizabeth, but to fight against a foreign invader who puts them all in danger. They may also be upset with her now, even if they normally support her. So she calls them her loving people, because some of them are. And the ones who aren't are not going to argue with her in front of her real supporters, especially not at this moment. And it's an amazing thing, but being called something that's maybe true, or sometimes true, or kind of true, tends to make us behave as if it is entirely true. If a teacher says, this is my good class, then it makes students want to live up to that. The same is true the other way, by the way. When students tell a teacher, you're my best teacher, or you're my favorite teacher, it makes that teacher want to work extra hard for those students. It doesn't work, though, if the statement is 100% clearly false. Then it just becomes a joke. So then Elizabeth acknowledges the real situation. She says that she has been advised to be careful about where she goes and who she gets close to, especially armed people, especially armed people in large groups, because there is a danger of treachery, that someone who opposes her or someone who is Catholic and wants England to stop being a Protestant nation under a Protestant queen would assassinate her. 
And she's saying this to a large armed group, right? But here she is, right in front of them, on a horse, close enough to speak to them directly. She's putting herself in danger. She's not listening to her advisors who told her to be careful. And then she tells them why. But I assure you, I do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people. Again, she refers to these soldiers, these militiamen, as her people, her faithful and loving people, which makes them want to be that. She tells them that she trusts them, and she implies she'd rather die than distrust them. It is hard to let someone down who trusts you. By saying this to them, and by taking the risk to walk among them where they could kill her if they wanted to, she is ensuring that they will be worthy of her trust. She does another nice thing with her pronouns here. Her first sentence, she uses the royal we. We have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves. The royal we is a grammatical form that a ruling monarch uses when speaking officially as the king or queen on the throne, making royal proclamations and whatnot. Instead of saying I, the queen would say we, as in we are hungry, bring us some donuts, referring only to her own empty stomach and planning on eating the donuts all by herself. The reasoning was that a queen represents every person in the country, and when she speaks as the queen, she isn't just Elizabeth, she is England, and the people of England. She is them. She represents these soldiers right in front of her. They are fighting for her because they are fighting for their country, and she is the embodiment of their country, which means they're fighting for themselves by fighting for her. Also, on some level, they are literally fighting for her as a person, because she is the main reason why Spain was trying to invade. If Elizabeth were not on the throne, this war would likely not happen. This shows them, reminds them, how important and powerful she is. And then the next sentence, the one where she says she trusts them, she says, I. This reminds them that she is also just a person, a human being, and she is vulnerable. And her trust in them reminds them that they, too, have power. Then Elizabeth says, let tyrants fear. This is a shot at the king of Spain, who was a much more controlling monarch than Elizabeth was. Elizabeth was generally very popular and worked very hard to maintain that popularity, not wanting to use force to rule her people. She says again that she trusts them, and not only that, she says that their goodwill is her strength and safeguard. It's a rousing compliment, and since she wants these men to fight to defend her nation, it's pretty literal. Their strength is what will keep her on the throne. They are the ones who must safeguard her, or she is lost. She does have the phrase, under God, which probably has two meanings here. One, that she is swearing under God that she takes her strength from her people. And also, too, that she considers God her first source of strength and safety, and right under God in the list of things that she gets her strength from are her people. Reminding them that they are fighting for their religion, for their faith, for God, and that she is devout and relies first on God as her support, helps them to find the same strength in their faith. And for the oath, it makes it easier to believe that what she is saying is simply true, that she does really trust and rely on them, because nobody would break an oath to, under, God. 
She makes another dig at other royals who might come out to look at their armies, but wouldn't ever deign to speak to them. Most royals saw themselves as far better and more important than the people they ruled, and they expected their subjects simply to obey and worship them. But here she is, taking time to talk to these men, riding her horse right alongside of them. It shows how important they are and makes them feel valued. It's also another shot of the Spanish king, who was of the Habsburg family that ruled most of Europe at this time, who are the most arrogant of blue bloods, where Elizabeth was born to a mother who had been a commoner before the king married her. Since her father was Henry VIII and her mother was Anne Boleyn, there's a whole lot more going on here, but I don't think it applies to this context. She is closer to the common people, and she thinks more of them than her opponent does. All of this is meant to ensure these men's loyalty to her, to keep them thinking that her enemy is the bad guy. So, she says that she's not there just for fun, for the show, but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live and die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust. This is an extraordinary statement. This means that she is going to fight with them, that she is going to bleed with them in this battle. This is, of course, not true. Not only are we well past the age when monarchs would take up the sword along with their men, but Elizabeth is a woman, and Joan of Arc notwithstanding, women do not fight in wars at this time. Also, Elizabeth was 55, which would be well past fighting years for a man, let alone a woman who has never done anything remotely like fight in a war. But it is true that Elizabeth's line is life is on the line along with theirs, and they know it. If Spain wins this war, Elizabeth is dead. She will surely be executed as a heretic, and also to remove her as a threat to of possible other uprisings that if Spain takes control of England, people would rally around Elizabeth as the quote-unquote rightful queen of England, and that would cause problems for Spain. So they would absolutely kill her. Um, and they'd probably put a Spanish puppet on the throne of England if England is not simply reduced to a colony of Spain. So, while she may not actually live and die amongst them, she will live and die with them. Because if they lose, she's dead. And she says she is willing to do it, that she will sacrifice both her honor and her blood. Again, the two aspects of who she is, both the ruling monarch and embodiment of England, that's the honor, and also this human woman sitting on a horse in front of them, whose blood may be spilled. And she'll sacrifice both these things for what really matters to her. And she lists the three things that really matter to her in order. Her God, because she is fighting for her religious beliefs against a nation that wants to impose their religion on her. For her country, which may no longer exist if this war is lost. And for them. She does not mention herself or her fame or her good name her honor, along with her blood, she says she will lay down in the dust, in the, the, the lowest possible place, right? Into nothing. She'll do it for them. How could they do anything but return that promise? Then we get into the sexist part of this. Elizabeth calls herself a feek and weeble woman. But she has to. First of all, these men can see that she is a woman in her late middle age. She is not going to win this fight with her muscle. Second, there's an advantage to her in pointing out that she is weak and a woman. That makes these men want to defend her because she can't defend herself. She's just a woman. 
and if they have that honor that she was just talking about, and don't think it's an accident that she used the word honor right before making this point, that's a good rhetorical decision. It associates the two ideas in the head of the, in the minds of the listeners. So if they have the honor that she was just talking about, then they will consider it required of them to fight to protect the damsel in distress. Elizabeth used this her entire life. She was known as the Virgin Queen because she never married, because she kept playing one enemy off against another, always keeping the possibility open that she would marry one of her rivals who would then become the King of England. So on some level, she always pointed out to all of the other nobles around her, all the other rival kings and queens and everybody else that was uh, a threat, that she might ask them to take charge of her because she was just a woman and she would be then submissive to them in marriage and it made them feel strong and powerful and then she didn't marry them so she just led them all on which was the way that she managed to play off much larger and more powerful nations against each other instead of having to fight them directly oh. one fascinating detail about this speech is that while she gave this speech elizabeth was wearing a white dress with a silver breastplate armor strapped on top of it. Because while she was a woman and used that to make men both underestimate her and ensure their loyalty to her because they had to protect her, she was also what she says next. She was a ruler with the heart and stomach, meaning courage, and also the mind of a ruler. She says king in order to remind them that her body, her woman's body, is not all she is. She is also their ruler and was generally a capable one. She throws out a classic, but presumably very effective, reminder of their patriotism. She's not only as strong as a king, she's as strong as an English king. Which of course means that she's got the heart and stomach of the very strongest king. Much stronger than those losers from Spain or Parma. Notice that when she refers to those other guys, the loser guys, she calls them princes. Because a prince is lower than a king. She looks with foul scorn on them for daring to invade her realm, and she will take up arms to fight against that. And the armor she was wearing was intended to signify that. I wish she had been actually holding up a sword right at this moment, and maybe she was. She was carrying a baton, a silver baton, that was supposed to represent, you know, the, the ruling monarch, the scepter of a monarch, and also the, the, a general's command, because um, that was the, the symbol the generals used to show their commands. But it'd be cooler if it was a sword. Anyway... Even without that, though, she promises to fight alongside them. Not literally, again, which they would never expect and would be shocked and horrified if she actually did so. But in spirit, she is there with them. And in some other ways, too. She says she will be the general, and indeed, she is in some ways their commander. Telling them what to do and where to go, if only because she names the man who does literally tell them where to go. She will be their judge to remind them that they have to make her proud, that she needs them and she will be watching them and they can't let her down. And if, she does, if they do, then she will judge them. And then if they don't let her down, she will be their rewarder. Which is probably literally true, speaking about after the battle. It's also interesting that these three things together make her sound a little bit like God. She then compliments their forwardness, meaning their willingness to show up here and be ready to fight. She offers them crowns, which has multiple meanings here. First, it means money, because the most common English coin is called a crown. She's offering them a monetary reward, which is probably a big part of the real reason many of these men are out here. Second, it means honor. By being associated with royalty and nobility, everyone there knows that the best way to move from the common people to the nobility was to show heroism in battle, 
when you might be knighted or even given a noble title for your mighty deeds. And third, subtly but still there, she is saying that they will be the man of the house, because right after this she calls herself a prince, though she uses the royal we to do it. We do assure you on a word of a prince, they shall be duly paid, meaning their honors and rewards that they're owed. And if they have a crown, they deserve a crown, and she is only a prince, it implies that they could be king. Not literally, again, but they would play the role of king, the role of the most important person there, by protecting the weak and feeble woman in her hour of need. Then she points to her general, who will actually be commanding them, but again, in her name and for her sake, and says, he is the best general who ever generaled, and then she gives them their final command. Show obedience to the general, concord in the camp, uh, because they were militia, they would lack the usual military discipline and might have personal grudges and feuds among themselves, um, and have courage on the battlefield, and they will win for her god, her country, and her people. Notice the repetition of the same list of things she would be willing to die for in the same order. Repetition shows emphasis. This is what she wants them to remember, the things that matter to her and to them. God, country, people. And she transfers it here from her things that she's willing to die for to their things that they should be fighting for, that they should be willing to die for, the things that they will win a great victory for, in the same order, God, country, people. And she is still not personally on this list, although, of course, she's represented in the country and, to some extent, in the people. Notice also that Elizabeth uses the rule of three. Generally speaking, we think a list of three things sounds like a good, round, complete list. Fewer than that is not enough, and more than that is too many. Look at how many times Elizabeth says things in the speech in groups of three. So there's her message and her audience, the speaker and the context. What can we say is the purpose of this speech? Generally speaking, there are three main purposes in communication, any communication, though almost every communication is a mix of two or even three, all three of these purposes. The purposes are to inform, to entertain, or to persuade. This one is pretty clearly meant to persuade. She doesn't tell them anything they don't already know, so she's not informing. And there's nothing here that's entertainment. This is a classic kind of speech that we see in every movie that has a big battle scene at the end. This is the motivational speech, the big rousing monologue that the hero gives right before the soldiers all cheer and then charge. That's Elizabeth's motivation. She wants to strengthen her men's determination to fight. So she gives them several reasons to fight. They are fighting for her, and she is fighting for them. She is willing to die for God, for country, and for the people of England. And that implies that those three things are what is at stake here. And as I've said, this is pretty much accurate. The truth of this, and Elizabeth's willingness to speak the truth and admit her vulnerability, helps make this speech convincing makes her believable. So these men know that they are defending Elizabeth, who needs defending, and by defending her, they are defending those three things that she would die for. And if a woman is willing to fight and die for God and country and countrymen, then how can these men refuse to do the same? They can't. She keeps the speech short and simple, and uses strong words like, in the midst and heat of the battle, to live and die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust. Because those will make the speech memorable. 
They'll remember those phrases. They will repeat them in their heads. They will take them to heart and will hopefully be inspired by them. She tells them that she trusts them and relies on them and offers them rewards of money and honor and prestige. And then, of course, nothing happens. The Spanish Armada is defeated. The invasion never comes. These guys go home, mostly without being paid, as it turns out. And Elizabeth reigns for another 15 years before she dies naturally. But still, it's a good speech. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope this has been interesting and helpful, both informative and entertaining. That's my purpose. As always, if you have any questions or concerns or issues you'd like to raise, or suggestions for literature or literary nonfiction you think that I should cover, please go to my website at www.theodenhumphrey.com and leave me a message through the contact page. See you next time.